All right, well, today we're starting a brand new seven-part series called The Seven Deadly Sins, and we're joined today by John, one of the best sinners that we know. We figured this would be good to invite Thud in once again, our fighter pilot friend. And Thud, especially, we want to hear your insights on this first deadly sin, because we're going to we're going to deal with the sin of pride. And when you think about pride in our culture today, I think so many people think about fighter pilots, because I remember when I first started befriending guys like you, I, I always kind of expected, you know, sort of the uh, Top Gun kind of attitude, a little bit kind of arrogant, cocky, swagger kind of thing. And I, I'll have to say I was pleasantly surprised that most of you guys that I met uh, were just incredibly humble men. And so I'm so excited to hear your insights about that because I know that's probably not true of all the fighter pilots, but certainly a lot of the Christian men that I've met, it's true of them. So we'll get to your story in a second, but John, first, why, what, what are the seven deadly sins real quick? Just give us an kind of a recap of the seven deadly sins and then why particularly the sin of pride is important for us to start with. Well, the reason pride is such an issue is if we don't get this one right, it's going to impact our ability to have victory in all the other sins. Uh, because if we feel like we're above sinning or we can do it on our own, we don't need accountability partners, you know, we don't need the Holy Spirit to empower us to be victorious. If we kind of get that I attitude, then, then all the other sins we're going to address in this series, the lust, the greed, anger, you know, all of these things that we're going to talk about, we automatically put ourselves at a disadvantage for those areas too. And I think in American culture, maybe other cultures as well, I'm obviously I've, I grew up in the United States, so I can't speak really to other cultures, but we're kind of told to, to be prideful. You know, we're, we're told that you can do it on your own. You pick yourself up by your own bootstraps and, and get this thing done. And uh, so I, I think this is a misconception among a lot of men on how we're called to lead in humility versus leading out of a prideful a prideful attitude. Thud, why don't you pull back the curtain on the fighter pilot culture? Because my understanding is it's changed a little bit in the 25 years that you've been involved. Oh, absolutely. And uh, you are spot on about when you meet someone, everyone expects you to be arrogant. Everyone expects you to be full of pride um, and have this superiority attitude. And that was uh, a lot of the culture. You know, if you look, if you watch the old movies from World War II, from the Vietnam era, that was the truth. And uh, there was actually um, some very famous aces that would always talk about that. And people would strive to be that arrogant, would try to be that, have a, um, an air of confidence, as they would say, and cockiness. And, um, and it was a very harsh world that we lived in, worked in. And so people were always striving to become that ace, the ace of the base, the best pilot, the best stick, things like that. And what happened about 25 years ago, right as I was coming in, I came into to as a believer, came into the fighter pilot community, and the first couple of years were just unbelievably horrible. It was uh, just what I thought. It was a lot of arrogance. It was um, pride like you would not believe, other manly, toxic masculinity um, type attitudes that were out there. But then about I say in the late nineties, early two thousands, uh, we have a version of what everyone's seen on, which is top gun. We have a version called the U S air force fighter weapons school. 
Top Gun's six weeks long. Ours is six months long. A little bit more. Just say we're just a little bit better. Not that I'm being <laughs> prideful or anything there, but um, the um, but they are the instructors and they set the tone tactically. But they changed their motto uh, to be. They they said they wanted three attributes of a fighter pilot. They wanted to be humble, approachable, incredible. And that was a shock to the world because if you look at you know, a way I, I read Jesus now and see Jesus now, he was humble, approachable, incredible. And so you saw a, a huge shift in the culture, which led to how we, we led in the air. Before in the air, the flight lead was the one that's going to get all the, the quote-unquote, the kills to become an ace first, that you're, as a wingman, you were to um, tell lead he was on fire, to break left. Uh, you were there to be the one that got shot down first. Today, the flight lead is the last to shoot. Today, the flight lead's goal is that everyone else in his formation is an ace before he is. And so you've seen this huge change in attitude, and you've seen, as a result, a huge change in performance that you see people coming to work, working together. And so when they debrief and they start calling out people's flaws, after a flight, after training, they usually start with themselves. And so the, the culture change has been phenomenal. And it's funny, it's almost opposite, opposite of what America's going through right now. America's become very self-absorbed, very prideful, and you see a, a community that was once very proud and arrogant and full of superiority becoming humble, approachable, incredible. Hmm. Yeah, and we see these these themes all over when we read the the stories and the teachings of Jesus, you know, in Luke 14, there's that story where Jesus noticed that all who had come to his dinner party were trying to sit in the seats of honor near the head of the table. And this is really goes hand in hand with what you just described in the shift in the fighter pilot culture. And he gave them this advice, when you're invited to a wedding feast, don't sit in the seat of honor. Because what if someone more is more distinguished than you and they've also been invited? Then the host will say, hey, give this person your seat. And you'll be embarrassed. He said, instead, take the lowest place at the foot of the table. And then when your host sees you, then he's going to say, hey, friend, we have a better place for you. Then you'll be honored in front of everybody. And, and then he, he brings us to this punchline, verse 11. He says, for those who exalt themselves will be humbled and those who humble themselves will be exalted. And we, you know, we see that even at the Last Supper, right? Jesus goes in there and shocks his disciples by going around and washing their feet. And he says, hey, look, I'm doing this for you because this is the culture of the kingdom. This is the culture that I want you to establish. Jesus was about to go to the cross. He was going to die on the cross. And then it was going to be up to these fishermen and tax collectors to, to create the church culture, right, as they started the church shortly after his death and resurrection. And he wanted to make sure that they understood that the culture in the Christian faith, in the Christian community, should be upside down. Never mind what our culture is in the business world or in the military or whatever, but in the Christian culture, it should be upside down, that whoever's first will be last, whoever's last will be first, and and you ser serving other people, even to the point of sacrifice, is really what it's about. Yeah, and I, I'll remember the uh, when I was a young captain, I was called into the colonel's office for the first time, and we were meeting in the uh, the conference room. And in the military conference room, it's usually a long table with chairs surrounding the table. And then there's chairs along the wall. And uh, there was four of us in there waiting to meet the colonel. So there's probably 
30 open chairs and probably 15 chairs at the table. And so I'm a captain. I walk in and we're waiting for the colonel and I, I roll right up to, up to the desk, up to the table. And I remember having a major and another senior captain look at me and goes, were you invited to this table? Mm -hmm. And, uh, here I am in an empty room that it can seat 40 to 50 people. And here I am, I quickly get my cue and got against the wall. And I'll never forget, um, Colonel Holmes went on to become a four-star general. He looks at me and goes, Thud, why are you sitting up over there? Why don't you come to the table? And it was just an, it was a moment of humility in which, you know, that I can't describe is that I thought I was, Hey, I'm a captain. I should be at this table. And something as simple as that really set the tone for my, my leadership career. And I see it today when I, I go into all these rooms and you will see exactly what Jesus describes right there. You will see those trying to get to, toward the head of the table. And uh, it's almost as sickening now, but uh, anyway. Yeah. And I'm sure people listening have seen that in their workplace or in school or in life, whatever, even just siblings, sibling rivalry, right? I think this happen. It's human nature. It happens everywhere, and so we want to, John. We want to kind of help, maybe help, especially the men and the young men listening to this. Help them to really wrap their mind around this. Like, what's at the root of this? And one of the things at the root of pride is this idea of of trying to establish your self worth. Here's our first talking point, John. I want you to help us understand it. Here, here it is. Pride is the false pathway. And we're going to be talking about false pathways a lot in this series, but pride is a false pathway to self-worth. You think you're going to get, you think you're going to arrive at self, self-worth because of your pride. And so we try to sort of build our self-worth on the basis of our own goodness. Now, again, it could, it might work for a little bit, but it's doomed for failure. Help us to understand that false pathway idea. Yeah, I want to, I want to dig into a, a story that Jesus told where we see some characters and, and one of them clearly is trying to do this. He's trying to build his self-worth based on his own goodness. It's Luke 18 verses nine through 12, the, the story of the Pharisee and the tax collector who are praying says, then Jesus told this story to some who had great confidence in their own righteousness and scorned everyone else. So I want us to remember that when we get into the parable itself, the story itself, that he's addressing a group of men, the scripture says, had great confidence in their own righteousness. And he goes on, he says, two men went to the temple to pray. One was a Pharisee and the other was a despised tax collector. The Pharisee stood by himself and prayed this prayer. I thank you, God, that I am not like other people, cheaters, sinners, adulterers. I'm certainly not like that tax collector. I fast twice a week and I give you a tenth of my income. And so Jesus is, is setting them up. I'm sure, I'm sure that, that part of the crowd self-identified with the Pharisee in a positive way, right? They haven't heard the punchline yet. I'll bet some of the men were like, yep, that's me. That's me. I'm one of those guys. I'm not like the, the cheater, the sinner, the adulterer. And so they derive their own self-worth on the basis of their righteousness, of their goodness. And, and that's what the Pharisee in the story is guilty of. But that's also clearly the attitude of the Pharisees that Jesus is addressing. And we probably wouldn't be that overt about it, right? I doubt any of the three of us would stand up in the church and pray like that. But if we're honest with ourselves, how many times have we thought something similar? 
you know, maybe we have someone who comes into our congregation with an addiction problem. And, and you can just clearly tell that that's an issue. And, and maybe that's something that we haven't struggled with. And in our mind, we're like, man, I've got some faults, but I'm so glad I'm not like that guy. You know, it's just really easy to slip into that kind of that pride and that self-righteousness. And, and when that happens, I think we can always find someone who's struggling more than we are or who deals with a sin that maybe for whatever reason, God in his mercy just has never really had us battle with that particular temptation. And so we get puffed up. Uh, we begin to scorn them. It says that these Pharisees, Jesus addressed the story to, were scorning everyone else. Uh, and, and that can happen to any of us. And so they clearly felt that they were better than those around them. And I think the way that you and I can avoid that is if we're ever going to compare, <laughs> we need to compare ourselves to God's standard. Because anytime we compare ourselves to God's standard, it will humble us. You, you look at anyone who came, you know, face to face with with God in scripture in the Old Testament, right? I mean, the first thing they do is look away. They drop to the ground. Like it, it just humbles them when they're in the presence of Almighty God. And you look at the attitude of the Pharisees when they come into the presence of Jesus, you know, God in the flesh, and they 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 ridicule him. They accuse him of being demon possessed, all these things. And yet, you know, people with a soft heart, when they come into the presence of Jesus, it's a totally different, totally different response. You know, Peter says, depart from me, Lord, from a sinful man. When Jesus caused the miraculous catch, like he recognized uh, just how amazing Jesus is, just how we should bow at his presence. Thud, when I think about men in self-worth, I think about fear of failure. So speak to this for a second, because I think a lot of men might not connect fear of failure to pride. But there really is a pretty strong connection there because it's a, it's all about that false pathway, trying to overcome your fear of failure. And it, it comes out, really, it, it exposes pride in your heart as a man a lot of times. Yeah, and the way I try to look at pride is when I start focusing on myself and not on the Lord or on the others. And so I, I tell you, there's been times in my career, um, the fighter pilot world is still, even though we're trying to be humble, approachable, credible, it's still pretty harsh. Uh, what we do is a, is a, uh, harsh, uh, business and we demand excellence. We demand, uh, perfection because people's lives are on the line. And it's real easy for me to go up there and go, Hey, I'm comfortable in the Lord. I love the Lord. I'm, you know, I'm trying to be humble. I'm trying to be sacrificial. Uh, but what I found myself throughout my career doing was a lot of worry, a lot of worry that tomorrow's training ride is not going to go like it should, or that I'm going to go out there and fail a test. And uh, that failure would be like, how would everybody see me? And, and, and what's funny is it even compounded more when I became more bold as a believer and I became more outspoken as a Christian. Because then I started thinking, oh, I'm going to let down the Lord. I'm going to let down my, my, my Christian brothers. And so that pride started compounding. And it was purely because of what I was worried about. If I fail here, what people would think about me. And so I started dwelling on the perception of me and not being the excellent uh, fighter pilot, not being the tip of the spear, not being 
you know, the one that is knows everything tactically and just that one sense of failure, one in my mind, one mess up on a training sortie could ruin my reputation. And so that became the, for years it ate at me and I, I called it my Goliath for a long time. That was one of the things that I couldn't sleep before flights. I, I couldn't, I couldn't focus. And, uh, it was finally when I, I mean, it has been within the last five years that I gave that up and said, Lord, you got this. I am, you have blessed me throughout my career. Looking back with 2020 hindsight, you've always been there. And if I need to fail, please teach me through this. And that, and what I found is it, it, probably because of my pride when I think how God always taught me is when I was on the mountaintops, I would get prideful and, uh, he wouldn't just leave me down the mountain. He'd shove me down the mountain. And so then I became fearful of that. And so my fear of failure became a focus on me and not about what the kingdom was and how I can serve others. This is one of, to me, this is one of the brilliant side, side benefits. I don't know if you could even call it a side benefit, but I mean, the main benefit of the Christian life is that we're forgiven of our sins. Is that, that spiritual freedom that we have, that eternal security that we have in Christ. But I think one of the side benefits of being a Christian for those people who are listening to this as followers of Jesus is that we can have emotional health, like true emotional health in this area. We don't have to we don't have to try to prove ourselves. We don't, I mean, this is the basic Christian message is Jesus did it, that we can be secure in our standing with God on the basis of Christ's goodness alone, not on the basis of how good of a fighter pilot you are, how good looking you are, how tall you are, how short you are, how muscular you are, whatever. All these things that our culture, especially now in the sort of selfie culture today, all of these things that mess with your, your sense of self, and again, if you don't see it in yourself, just look at your kids, look at young people and how it's how hard it is today for young people because we're we're so we're everyone is so insecure when you're thinking about basing your security on some external thing. The basic message of the cross is Jesus did it for you and it's not about you that your your ultimate identity is in Christ. And so really the opposite of pride is this kind of humility, the kind of humility that is that recognizes that nothing you say can take no, nothing you say or do can take away from who you are in Christ. No failure can take away from what Christ did for you. And I think when a, when somebody really grasps that, when someone really understands that, it really is you're you're on the pathway now to real freedom from pride because you don't have to you don't have to try to get to self worth through that um, that false pathway. And I think Brian, that's so important. What you said a minute ago is where do you find your identity? I was at a conference this last weekend and saw a lot of retired members there and who still find their identity in their careers. And the American culture, both the American dream and the, the, the social media culture we have right now is all about what you have, who you are, what you say, what you wear, uh, what your job is, what your social ranking is, if you will, almost. And that has, has completely twisted how we see ourselves. And when you find that identity in Christ, when you can relax in him and knowing that he made you perfect, he has a plan for your life. It is, it is, uh, so liberating. 
I, I think of one example. There's um, one of my mentors. He was a he was an instructor of mine about the time the the change from the fighter pilot culture was changing, and he always came across very humble. But uh, he was a phenomenal fighter pilot. He was the one everyone wanted to be like, and he was. He had an he had a little he had enough religion in his life to be respectful of Christians, and he was on the path to incredible success. And uh, when I say he was on the path of militarily, he should be a four star general right now, and probably running the Air Force. But about five or six years ago, his pride um, led to a huge downfall. And it was a, it was a, it was so much of a downfall. He found so much of his identity in his work, and when the quote unquote Air Force let him down, uh, he tried to burn everything down, and uh, it leaded to uh, suicidal tendencies. Uh, I won't share his entire testimony, but it ends with him struggling with God in solitary confinement in a jail cell. This is a man who should have been a four-star general, who is the pinnacle of being a fighter pilot the pinnacle of what America sees as success. And God brought him down. You know, it talks about, uh, Proverbs 16 talks about pride comes before destruction and haughtiness becomes before the fall. Well, he fell hard. And uh, today, his ministry is phenomenal. Probably one of the greatest prison ministries in Alabama well, it's the greatest in my mind. It is anyway. Uh, but uh, he really wears Jesus now. You see him and you see Jesus because he is completely self-sacrificial. He completely thinks about others in every moment, and uh, it is amazing to see what God will do uh, if we allow ourselves to submit and allow Him to crush that pride, and uh, how how it turns into uh, how He can focus on the kingdom, not ourselves. John, it reminds me of uh, the most prolific author of the New Testament, the Apostle Paul, who was a Pharisee, which was probably their version of fighter pilots, I thought, back in the day, 2,000 years ago. And this was a guy who really, I think, found his self-worth in his knowledge of the Old Testament and his standing in the Jewish community, and, and then he meets Jesus. And it literally humbled him. And he's the guy that wrote Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, which says, God saved you by his grace when you believed. You can't take credit for this. It's a gift from God. Salvation isn't a reward for the good things we've done, so none of us can boast about it, which was, uh, again, uh, almost part of his testimony, that he came to that realization that it's not about him. It's about it's, it's his standing with God is secure on the basis of Christ's goodness alone. That was life-changing for Paul, and it's life-changing for anyone today who's listening to this. Yeah, Paul went from being that guy that trusted in his own righteousness, said he was a Pharisee among Pharisees, to the guy that said, even my righteous deeds are like filthy rags. You know, Paul, Paul understood there's no reason for us to be prideful about our standing with God. It's all because of his grace. It's because of his mercy. It's all about what Jesus did for us, not not what we did. You know, it it's this interesting paradox, right? That on one hand, we bring nothing to the table. We, we don't have any value on our own. And yet God says we're incredibly valuable. 
were incredibly valuable to him. When I talk with people who are struggling with their, their self-value, I, I always try to help them to understand it by asking them, how do we determine what something's worth? You know, if I was trying to sell my, I've got an old F-150 that we're thinking about selling. And so how do I determine what that's worth? Well, it's, it's, it's worth whatever somebody's willing to pay for it. That's what it's worth. And so then I just ask people, what was God willing to pay for you? Like that should help you understand how much you're worth that he, he was willing to give everything for you. But again, even our worth comes from who created us, right? It's, it's not, we're not worth that much just because of us. We're worth that much because the Bible says we're created in the image of God. And when we begin to understand that, I think this is what you were talking about, Brian, with the emotional health, you know, particularly if there's young men listening to this, man, when you know that the God of the universe thinks that much of you and says that you are fearfully and wonderfully made, it's not that big a deal if you don't have that many followers on your social media account. It's not, it just, mm -hmm. it just has a whole new level of relevance, right? And, and it, it brings you peace. It, it does bring that emotional health. We don't get so hung up on what others think about us. And we know the source of our value is who created us. And, and the Bible tells us that God is unchanging. And like you said earlier, I mean, he doesn't, he doesn't love me less on, on one of my bad days. And he doesn't love me more on one of my good days. Um, he loves me consistently and he loves me and he sees me through the perfection of Jesus Christ if I put my faith in Jesus. Yeah, you read you read the first part of that Luke story uh, about the Pharisee saying, "I'm so grateful that I'm not as bad as all those other guys." And Jesus finishes that in verse 13 and 14. He says the tax collector stood at a distance. Remember, Jesus had at least one tax collector that was in his inner circle, and so the tax collector stands at a distance. And of course, he was despised by their culture. He was sort of the scum of the earth for for Jewish people, and he dared not even lift his eyes to heaven as he prayed. Instead, he beat his chest in sorrow and he said, oh, God, be merciful to me for I am a sinner. And then Jesus said this, I tell you, this, this sinner, not the Pharisee, return home justified before God. For those who exalt themselves will be humbled and those who humble themselves will be exalted. So there it is. There's that, the there's that theme again in the upside down kingdom of heaven that, and again, it's just some, for some people, it might be hard to even wrap their minds around, especially if you're, you're listening to this and you're not quite yet a follower of Jesus. This is, this is sort of the crux of the gospel message is Jesus said it in another place. I have come not to call those who think they're righteous, but those who know they're, they're sinners. And the, the starting point, really the starting point for having this freedom from pride, from from um, insecurity, the starting point is recognizing that you're broken, that you're lost, recognizing that you can't earn your way to a seat at the table, that you can't earn your way to God. That's the starting point. But again, the shocking, um, I don't know, the mystery of the gospel is that that person then gets a seat at the table. That person then gets exalted because of what Jesus did on the cross. It really is just a a beautiful, um, I don't know, answer, a, a beautiful equation, I guess, is that it's only the humble ones who will end up really experiencing the fullness of life that Jesus offers to us. And that's why we wanted to start with this sin, the sin of pride. No, I was 
when we talk about pride and you know how how do I overcome it? How do I battle it? There's several ways of battling it, but for me personally, it's what you were just talking about. It was the gratitude antidote for me. It's the the creator of the universe, the one whose ways are higher than mine, as Isaiah 55 talks about that. He knows me and he loves me and he cares for me and he wants the best for me if I will just submit to him and that I will know that, you know, his ways are better. I heard someone say one time that uh, God is the creator of the universe and he has his ways. And while I may think my ways are better, I'm not the creator of the universe. And when we submit to that and we get into God's word and we see his truth, you know, he is so good. And that, that heart of gratitude is what keeps me humble is that, you know, God loves me this much. He wants to bless me. He wants to, he wants what's best for my life as long as I'm focusing on the kingdom. And, you know, recently we had, um, on January 12th of this year, uh, we had a devastation in our family. We, we think is devastation, uh, in the fact that a, a very large tornado completely wiped out our house and farm and, my in-laws were there in the house and they are, they survived. And it's, uh, it's so amazing to say that we've been blessed through losing our home and through losing our farm that we, that we loved. But God has blessed us in so many more ways of seeing how good he is, how faithful he is, how supportive he's been. Ooh. Sorry, I get emotional, but uh, when you see, even in times of darkness, how what we think is darkness, how good he is and how the kingdom can be glorified, it is a very humbling. And it's uh, that heart of gratitude that he's blessed me with through all this that has uh, really um, been the antidote to my pride and really brought my pride way down. You know, John, I think we need to finish with one more insight because I, I imagine some of our listeners might think, okay, so then how I handle my pride is to hate myself. Self-hatred is the way that I handle my pride. And actually, that's not at all what the Bible says. Even though the Bible says we're sinners, that that Jesus only can really help those who recognize they're sinners, that doesn't mean you should hate yourself. Recognize, recognizing that you're broken and powerless is not the same thing as self-hatred. Um, self-hatred actually is, is pride because it's focused on self. Satan just wants us to be focused on ourself, whether it's on our the good things we've done or the bad things we've done. Either way, Satan just wants us to be focused on ourself um, one way or the other. So really the antidote isn't self-hatred but it's self-sacrifice. It's really looking outward to find someone else to serve. And, you know, we've been touching on this throughout this conversation today, but let's finish by getting just really clear about what that might look like um, in the life of a listener today. Yeah, I would just say too, if you, if you hear Brian say that and that, you know, you want to push back on that a little bit. I mean, the Bible calls us to love our neighbor as ourselves. So clearly we're not, we're not called to hate ourselves because we're called to love our neighbor as ourselves. It's, it's the second part of the greatest commandment, right? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, and all your strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. And again, I'll, 
I'll refer back to Psalm 139, that, that the Bible says that you are fearfully and wonderfully made and that God's works are wonderful. So the Bible is definitely not calling us to hate ourselves. Uh, and as you and I put our faith in Jesus Christ, we become adopted sons and daughters of the King, of, of the Almighty God of the universe. And, and I think our culture, actually, some of the things that, that we see manifesting itself in our culture today is a product of self-hatred. All of the confusion about gender. Someone who who says, "Well, I was born a boy, but I identify as a, as a girl." There's something about them that that hates that you know their their identity, their very identity. They don't like it. They're not comfortable with it. They feel like they should be something different, and so self loathing mm-hmm. is is unhealthy. And it and it is Brian. It's something the devil is using to gain a foothold in so many people. When we begin to question our value in the, in the eyes of the perfect holy God who created us. And, and you need to know that God created you the way he created you for a reason and for a purpose. Uh, and, and so it's not, it's not self-loathing at all. It's in fact, as you said, getting our eyes off ourself, getting our eyes on those around us and looking for opportunities to serve them, looking for opportunities to help the next person pursue God. And Thud, for you, in the Southern culture, I think you you probably can speak to this better than we can, because there's this sort of sense of false humility that comes with, well, any culture, but in particular, I think probably the Southern culture. Oh, yeah. Bless your heart. I mean, that is uh, that is so <laughs> true. Uh, my wife and I were uh, speaking about this yesterday when we were talking about this subject, and uh, I was bouncing ideas off of her and getting her thoughts. And I think that's one thing that uh, she brought up the most is uh, both she and I, when we were, when we were, when the church talked about humility, at least what we heard was to think less of yourself, that you're not as good, that you're not, uh, you know, we shouldn't even think of ourselves as good. And what's funny is because of that, we think that a lot of this false humility has come into the Southern culture. Uh, bless your heart, uh, different conversations, different, uh, like, oh, sweetheart, you know, you're so, you're, you're good. Don't worry about it. You just, you look fine. But when really the fact is they're calling you out or they're saying something bad about you, or they're going to talk about behind your back. And so in the South, we see a lot of religion in there. And I think a lot of the, what the Pharisees used to do the same thing of calling other people out, using religion to shame others into humility and to use that shame to bring pride down, which is just the opposite. I think instead of thinking less of yourself, it's thinking about yourself less, thinking of other people more. And uh, it's funny is that even that false humility, this I've seen super humble people use that to manipulate others. Hmm. And they, they use that, uh, that shame they put on you to actually control you. And it can be in the, just like the, I think the, the Pharisees did back in the Jesus's day. So, John, if it's not self-hatred, if it's not false humility, then just again on a practical level for people who are listening to this saying, I want to I wanna kill, I want to snuff out pride in my life, walk us through here as we finish up just up on a practical level what it means then to be self-sacrificial rather than self-hating. Yeah, I want to just quickly go back to that line that Thud mentioned because, I mean, it's it's a it's a great little one liner but it's so true it's it's not thinking less of yourself it's thinking of yourself less it's it's getting our eyes off of ourselves 
you know, getting our eyes on, on Jesus first and foremost, but then getting our eyes on the world around us. John 13, three through five, you know, this is at the last supper, this powerful moment where Jesus washes the feet of his disciples, where the God of the universe who had already left the comforts of heaven, who took on flesh now assumes the position of the lowliest slave. If, if you know anything about that culture in that time, the worst job you could have in the household was to be the guy who had to wash the feet of the people who came in off the street. The people had been walking barefoot or in sandals all day in the dirt and the, the manure and the grime and everything like that. And now you're the guy having to wash that. And that's what Jesus does. But, but this is interesting. Verse three, it says, Jesus knew that the father had given him authority over everything and that he had come from God and would return to God. Verse four, so he got up from the table took off his robe, wrapped a towel around his waist, and poured water into a basin. Then he began to wash the disciples' feet, drying them with the towel that he had around them. That's the last thing our culture would think, right? If you read that today to someone, you would read that first verse, Jesus knew the Father had given him authority over everything, so he sat around and made everybody wait on him. <laughs> but that's not at all what it says. Because Jesus knew who he was, because he knew that God had given him all authority, so he served. And so I would just challenge the, the listeners today, the believers today, like you and I should have a so in our lives. Because God sent his son for us, because he rescued us, because he's declared us righteous by the blood of Jesus, so we should look around and serve others. We, we should pour out our lives as an offering, as, as a sacrifice to the Lord and to those around us uh, because of what he's done for us, because of this, this gratitude that Thud mentioned earlier, that we are just so overwhelmed with thanksgiving that God would do that for us, that he would call us into relationship with him. So we serve. And there's a, there's a level of community. There's a connection that happens at a deeper level when we do that with others. It, it, and so it's one of those things that it blesses us. It's like everything else God calls us to do, even though it's hard sometimes. He has our, he has our best interests at heart. He knows what's best for us. He knows what's good for us. You know, we just had a clean day at our campus to kind of get ready for the, for the Easter services and Easter weekend. And, and anyone who knows Northern Utah, we had a horrible winter this year. So instead of doing all the outside chores we normally would do is mainly inside projects. But this happens every year. I, I kind of sit back as I'm serving and as I'm just trying to make connections with people, some of the relationships that get built at those clean days and those work days become the strongest friendships in our congregation. That as people get out of themselves, as they get their eyes off themselves and they look to serve and they look to partner with other believers, you know, those bonds and those relationships are some of the strongest that we have. Thud, I want to give you the last word on this. You're a colonel in the Air Force on your way to being a general. I know people probably, when they see you in the hallway, there's just uh, incredible deference, probably how you felt 25 years ago. Um, but you just you recognize you're just a regular guy. I mean, speak to us one more time. Speak especially to the men out there um, as they're really trying to get a handle on this deadly sin of pride in their lives. Yeah, I think the... Um the most important thing we do is, is call it out. I, I see pride as a frustrating sin. It's a sin that uh, we all have, that we all struggle with. 
And so because of that, we give people passes on that. If we were to talk about, hey, I, I deal with lust, they would look at me one way. But if I say I'm dealing with pride, they would almost give me a pass. And uh, I heard Francis Chan talk about that years ago. And uh, it's, it's, it's made an impact on me that we need to call this out. So in the fighter pilot world, we have what's called the fighter pilot debrief. So we'll go fly and then we may fly for an hour, but afterwards we may reconstruct that, that flight for the next four, five, six, seven, eight hours sometimes. And we call out every little detail. And what's great about that is that the rank comes off in the, in the debrief. So I, as a Colonel now, maybe flying as a flight lead or as a wing, excuse me, a wingman, for, for a captain or even a lieutenant and in the debrief they have the right to call me out they have the, the i expect them to point out my errors and so i think we need to do the same thing with pride that we need to call it out when we see it proverbs eighteen five says the lord detests the proud that they are surely to be punished that's in the it's in nlt but in the king james he said everyone that is proud is an abomination to the lord I mean, words mean things, and, and God's words are perfect. Think about what you detest. Think about what you consider to be an abomination. When I say the word, I detest something, I can think of some really horrible things. And if God sees pride that way, and he uses the word detest, abomination, and says they will surely be punished, Man, we need to listen to that, and we need to call it out. We need to call our brothers and our sisters out on this immediately. Well, if you want to do that in your family devotional this week or with your small group or even just one-on-one in a mentoring relationship, I just encourage you to find this series along with all these other conversations. You can find all this. But this particular one, remember, this is week one of our seven Deadly Sins series. You can find it at PursueGod.org forward slash seven dash sins the number seven dash sins i encourage you to check it out and and make sure to tune in next time because we're going to tackle deadly sin number two next week it's going to be just as convicting as this one was thud john thanks for this and we'll see everybody else next time